Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse Bible study of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Well, you may have noticed when you walked through the front door that there was a cake. So everyone who stays awake and participates and listens well gets cake today. People who nod off don't get cake. The reason that there's a cake with an open Bible that says grace, grace, grace on it, the reason for that cake is that this past Friday was June 3rd, which was our 15th anniversary as a public church, which is pretty impressive. When we first moved in here, this was a a house built by a retired general in a wheelchair, and he died before he could make his first payment. And so it was bought by uh, several men in the area who bought it as investment property, and they had a renter in here. And then we were contacted by the... uh, the mayor of Smyrna, believe it or not, because we had just bought this property next door. And this property next door was horse land. And it was terrible. And it had a barn on it. And it was all torn up. It was terrible. But we could get it real cheap because of the high tension wires that crossed it. So nobody could build in the middle of that land. But we were willing to build over on this side of the land. And we got the city of Smyrna to agree to that. And so the mayor called and said, are you the church that just bought that property? And I said, yeah, that's us. He said, I don't want to start a rumor and I don't want to broker a deal, but I'm under the impression that the house and land next to it might be for sale. Because he knew something that the investors did not know. A couple of the investors owned a small lumber concern here in town. And he knew that Home Depot was coming. And he knew that Lowe's was coming. And he knew that that was going to get in the way of that small lumber concern. And so uh, without a real estate agent, we met with the investors. We looked around the property. I kept thinking that maybe the first place that we would meet in this building would be in the garage. That was the largest uncluttered space. And we had had a Bible study in my house for nearly five years. And we needed to get out of there and find some place larger. And we looked around here. I was standing in the middle of this room. And there was an island in the middle of this room because that was originally his kitchen. And where I'm standing now was originally his living room. And there was a TV here and a couple chairs over here. And table and chairs over there, and everything was designed for a man in a wheelchair. So I said, this isn't going to work. There's no large enough space. This isn't going to work. And Mike and Brent, who were with me, looked around at this room and said, Jim, you're not looking at it right. Take another look. They said, the high vaulted ceilings and the sidewalks all the way around the outside and the extra wide doors And he had built a public building to his specifications, and then he died. And so we said, we can buy this without a real estate agent. 
we can get a loan, which no bank should ever have given us a loan. But when we bought this property next door, one person came forward and gave us the money to buy it. After we had bought it, we bought it on faith that somehow we would be able to afford it. And a week after we bought it, someone paid for it. So because we had that property that we could use as collateral, we could get a bank loan to buy this building. And we were in this building about a year, two years. And one night, Mike came back from the post office box. In fact, he called Tom and I. We were here on a Wednesday night. And Mike called and said, uh, don't leave. Stay there. That's all he said, too. And I turned to Tom, and I think I said to him, uh, I think something very good is about to happen. And Mike showed up here, and he had the envelope with him and $100,000. And we were able to pay off this building. In a very, very short time, we suddenly became a debt-free church. And we own this, and we own the property next door, and we own it all outright. I've told this story many times, and it's probably not worth telling again, but I'll tell it to you because I have nowhere to be today. (laughs) The, The first week or two that we moved in here, people were trying to find a place to park. And so we said, well, we really need a parking lot right out here, just the other side of the fence. We need a parking lot here. But we were kind of tapped. We had spent all our money, of course. How could we get a gravel parking lot over here? And I was driving down the street one day, looking at our building, which at the time had a banner that we would put up every Sunday. We would just put up a banner saying that we met in this building. And we had taken the island out, so we were meeting in this little room. This was before we took out the the garage and made the foyer out here, and before we had closed up that room in the back. And all of those changes that we've made to the building, all we had done is taken out the island. And so... We had some chairs here, and people were coming here, but they didn't know where to park. So I was driving by the building, and I noticed that there was a large industrial grater on our land. And there was a couple of small cat graters on our land, just parked out here. And so I put my business card on the industrial grater and said, this is private land. Call me. Well, the phone rang that afternoon. And the guy said, "Uh, I'm sorry, we just needed a place to put the equipment because they were putting in the sidewalks all up and down this road. He said, we just needed a place, and we didn't know who owned the land, but that seemed like a good place to leave the equipment. And he said, we'll move it. We'll move it right away. And I said, no, no, I don't want you to move it. I need a parking lot. And he instantly said, oh, sure. (laughs) So all of you who are parking out here now, You're parked in a parking lot that we just got providentially because there just happened to be sidewalks needed on this street and there just happened to be an industrial grader and a cap machine and stuff out here on our land. And so there was a series of these kinds of providential moments where we just knew that God was in this. We could just feel that God was in this. This was a work that that he was supporting and we were so very pleased. Well... Now I look at it differently. Now I have the perspective of time. Now I don't look at those early moments as the proof that God is in this. I look at the 15 years. 
And in this 15 years, we have seen many, many other churches who have been in the school up here or have rented a space somewhere in the YMCA or in the Boys and Girls Club around the corner. And we've seen all these churches come and go because they don't have any content at the center of them. Their reason for existing is showbiz, essentially, and a very weak gospel and a very weak kind of God that they preach. And we just keep going, and we see them rise, and we see them disappear. And I'm never happy to see a church disappear, but the fact that they do makes me realize that it's just God's grace that has allowed us to be here for 15 years. And many, many people have come through those doors, or that door, through the 15 years. If they had all stayed, I don't know where we'd put them all. Now we're about the size of the church that we were 15 years ago. We retain our uh, small status, but I'm so very grateful that even as small as we are, we have reached out to the internet world, and the internet world has allowed us to teach people and contact people all over the place 24 hours a day. And we have an amazingly large internet audience for the size church that we actually are. And people write to me and say, I can't find a church like yours where I am. In my community, there's not a church that's talking about the sovereignty of God and really talking about the grace of God and explaining the Bible theologically and in a way that I can understand. The nicest compliment anybody gave me off the internet is they said, you put all the good stuff on the lower shelves where we kids can get it. And that's right. I, I try to take these complicated things and make them simple enough that we can all understand what the Bible is saying. Fifteen years. If you add the time in my house, it's 20 years. If you add the time that I served the internship out in California, Tom and I were talking about it this morning, that began about 1984-85, right around that period. So it's been a long time that I've invested in the word of God and in getting the gospel out. And I'm so grateful, so very grateful, especially with the events of the last couple of months. I'm so very grateful that God has allowed me to handle his word for this long. Because I've seen other people attempt it and, and they couldn't do it. I've met ex-pastors. I've met people who used to be in the ministry. I've met people who used to teach, and then at some point they stopped for whatever reason. And they go and get jobs, or they go into politics, which I'll never understand. They just don't do it anymore. I don't know how to stop. I've proven by my track record that uh, if this all for some reason didn't exist, if we were to lose this land and this building, I'd invite people to my house, to my living room, and I would still talk to anyone who showed up about God. If it were two people, I would talk about God. I would talk about his word. If this place were packed and we were a megachurch, I would still say the same thing because the truth is the truth. And one thing that I'm, I don't mean to sound like I'm bragging, but that I'm pleased with is that if you go back and you listen to the oldest series on our website, which is the Romans series, 
If you go back and listen to the Roman series, which was taught in my house, in a small group Bible study, the theology is just the same. The God I was preaching then is the God I'm preaching now. I have a greater knowledge of him now. I have more experiential knowledge of him now. Certainly, he softened me from those days. But the theology is just the same. Because the Bible teaches one God. The Bible teaches one gospel. The Bible teaches one faith. And I believe entirely in what the Bible says. So I want to thank God and I want to thank you all for 15 years because uh, it's been a, a remarkable time of uh, triumphs and deep, deep valleys, but we never quit. <laughs> we just kept going. And, and even today, well, you're welcome. And even today, we have somebody who found us on the internet who has been trying to get to us, who who's here today. So proof yet again of the outreach. It's okay. Hmm? It's okay. So it's about cake. Yes, it's about cake. The rest of what I was talking about is meaningless compared to the fact that there's cake. And if you saw the cake, it looks like a really good one. So get yourself a piece of cake before you leave. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Last week, we finished up in the book of Matthew with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane saying repeatedly to his apostles, can't you stay awake with me? Can't you pray with me? And of course, that kind of begs the question, well, what was Jesus praying? This is a a moment in time. This is an epoch in time. This is a crucial moment. This is the night before he knows that he's going to be crucified. This is the night before he knows that he's going to be handed over to the king and to the Gentiles. He knows he's going to be beaten. He knows he's going to be bloodied. He knows he's going to have his beard plucked out. He knows he's going to be spit on and mocked. He knows that the wrath of God is going to be poured out on him at this very moment. What does he pray about? What does he say to his father? What is he concerned with? Well, John, knowing that Matthew and Mark and Luke had all written, but none of them had recorded the prayer, John actually records the prayer for us. Maybe he stayed nearer to Jesus. Maybe he stayed awake a little longer. But we certainly get a good feel for what Jesus was concerned with before his crucifixion, the night before his crucifixion. And that's John 17. It's his high priestly prayer. Now, because it's oftentimes called his high priestly prayer, let me take a moment and talk about what it is to be a priest. Because the priests of Yahweh were given exclusively to Israel. There were no priests of Yahweh given to any of the Africans or any of the Chinese or any of the Europeans or Australians or Red American Indians or just Israel. Israel by themselves actually had access to the law of God, the prophets of God, and the intercessory work of the priests of God. Now, when the high priest would go in before God, 
he would go into a place called the Holy of Holies, which was a tent inside a tent. And that was a place where he could only go once a year and only with a particular clothing. And then he would take the sacrificial blood to a place called the Kaporeth, which was the covering that was placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Kaporeth had a couple of angels that were carved on top of it in gold, and those angels had wings that came around them and touched in the center. And on that Kaporeth, between the wings of the angel, the sacrificial blood was sprinkled. And so once a year, the high priest would go in on the day of Yom Kippur, and would go in and make a sacrifice, but the sacrifice that he made, like I just said, was for particular people. So particular, in fact, that the clothing that the priest had to wear included a couple of shoulder pieces, and those shoulder pieces had the names of six of the tribes of Israel on one shoulder and six of the tribes of Israel on the other shoulder. But then he also had to have a gold breastplate over his chest, over his heart. And it had 12 precious stones in it. So when he went in there to intercede with Yahweh in the Holy of Holies on the Yom Kippur, who was he in there interceding for? He was interceding for Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. It was very, very particular. Now, God designated who could come in front of him, who the high priest was going to be. And God designated what day he could come in front of him. And he designated how the worship was to be done and how the animals were to be sacrificed and how the blood was supposed to be sprinkled. All these things were prescribed by God on purpose. Because God was very particular about how his worship was going to be done. But he was also very particular about which people were being forgiven in that work. So the cloud of God would come down and rest between the angel wings on the uh, Kaporeth on the day of Yom Kippur. And all the people outside the tent could see the cloud of God come down. And then they knew that God had accepted the offering for yet another year. Now, my point in saying all that is that I hope you recognize the particularity of God's priestly work. It wasn't universal. It wasn't for everybody. It wasn't for all those other people groups that I named. It was for Israel and Israel only. Why? Because God chose them. God chose Abraham and his descendants. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons, those descendants, that people group, that nation of groups. That's who he chose, and that's who he had the high priest go in on the day of Yom Kippur for. So knowing that, it shouldn't be surprising that when Jesus, as our high priest, and as Israel's high priest, went into the garden to pray to God one last time before his sacrifice of himself, before the blood of the new covenant was spilled, knowing again that in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, and that in Hebrews 8, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Again, it's not surprising that Jesus at that moment would be praying with particularity, that he would be saying he's laying down his life for a particular people and people get quite upset about that it's why gca is not a megachurch 
It's why we preach the things that we do, God's absolute sovereignty and God's absolute control, and that God knows what he's doing and that he's picking and choosing people who he's going to draw to himself and that he sent his son to die for those particular people. And Jesus says so. And that is all introduction to chapter 17 of the book of John because listen to the particularity in this verse. These things Jesus spoke and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that thy son may glorify thee. Even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind. Gave him authority over all mankind. Why? You gave him authority over all mankind that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. So who ends up with eternal life? All those that God gave to the son. There's no universality there. There's particularity in it. And this is, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. I've been saying for weeks now that when it came to the cross, when it came to Golgotha, when it came time for him to give up his life, that there was nothing that was out of his control. He was not a pathetic victim of Hebrew religion or Rome's persecution. He gave his life. He laid his life down for people because he knew that he was going to raise his life back up again and that he had this command from his father. And so he came to accomplish a particular thing which he had accomplished, which is the salvation of his people. And so he said, I glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Before there was ever a world. Before there was ever a Tyler. Before there was ever an Adam and Eve. Before there were animals. Before there were stars in the sky. Before all that, Jesus was in glory. He was with his father. And so in time, he came to the planet to tell us about the father because he knew about the father. He's the only one who really genuinely knew about the father. And so he came to the planet to tell us how we could be in the father's presence. And now glorify thou me, this is verse 5, together with thyself, father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was, I manifested thy name to the men whom thou hast given me out of the world. Who did he manifest the name to? To everybody? Was Jesus a universalist? Did Jesus go out and manifest the name of God to everybody randomly without discretion? No, he manifested the name of God to the people that God gave him. And he said so. I manifested thy name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. 
For the words which thou gavest me, I have given them, and they received them, and truly understood that I came forth from thee, and they believed that thou didst send me. Notice the next verse, verse 9. The NASB says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. The King James says, I pray for them, which is the same word. That's what prayer means, to ask. But I pray for them. I do not pray for the world. Isn't that interesting? Now, here is Jesus about to give his life. Here is Jesus about to endure the wrath of God. Here he is about to do his priestly intercession, and he says to God, I don't pray for the world. I pray for those people who belong to you, who you gave to me, who I came and told about you. That's who I'm praying for. Now, by the way, I'm prone to think that if anybody could get a prayer through at this particular moment, Jesus could. His prayer is going to be heard. His prayer is going to be responded to by his father. And he says, at this moment, I'm not praying for everybody. I'm only praying for the people you gave me. Now, that upsets people. It upsets people terribly to find out that John wrote that Jesus said that he did not pray for the world. They say, oh, yes, he must have prayed for the world. Because after all, John 3.16 God so loved the world. But if he so loved the world, why wouldn't Jesus pray for them? So he says, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me because they're yours. That's why I'm praying for them. That's why I'm laying down my life for them. That's why I'm interceding for them. That's why I'm being their high priest. That's why I'm sacrificing for them, because they belong to you. Do you understand what that means? That means that Jesus came and did everything he did because the Father had chosen you in particular because you belong to the Father. And that ought to give you great confidence. The next time that you've got to tell somebody about God, the next time you have to preach the gospel, the next time that you need to say a word on behalf of Christianity, you should not be afraid. You should be bold in it. Because after all, before the foundation of the world, before there ever was a world, Jesus was in glory and they wrote the Lamb's Book of Life. According to the book of Revelation, the Lamb's Book of Life, the names of all those that belong to God, was written before the foundation of the world. God knows exactly what he's doing. He knew it from the very beginning. He knew you were going to be born. He knew how long you were going to die. He knew you were going to... You were going to be here for a certain number of years, that you were going to be sick, that you were going to, he knew what was going to happen to you. But one thing he knew about you for certain was that you were going to belong to him. He was going to draw you. He created you, and he created you in such a way that you would come to him and that he would introduce himself to you in your life and that you would have faith in the finished work of Christ. And he knew all of that because from the beginning, you belonged to him. And he sent his son because you belong to him. I just saw Joni go, wow. (laughs) Because, yeah, wow. 
You could have gone with hallelujah or an amen would have been good, but wow, works. When you think about what the Bible is actually saying about your security and God's election, it's great news. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom thou hast given me because they are thine. And all things that are mine are thine. And all things that are thine are mine. And I have been glorified in them. And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, and look at the comparison, even as we are one. Now, we talk a lot about the Trinity. We talk a lot about the fact that Christ is God. We talk a lot about the fact that the Father and the Son have a closeness of relationship that's unlike any relationship we will ever have in our human experience. And yet, Jesus' prayer was that those people who belong to God would be so close, would be so unified, would love each other so much that they would have the kind of unity that God and Christ have. Boy, that's good. And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee, Holy Father, and keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me. And I guarded them, and not a one of them perished except the son of perdition, that the scriptures may be fulfilled. And that's Psalm 41.9, because that was written, because it was already said that somebody who ate at his table, who ate his bread, was going to lift his hand against him. That absolutely had to happen. And in God's divine sovereignty and in Jesus' own foreknowledge of what was going to happen, he chose his own betrayer. He chose his own accuser, who he refers to as a son of perdition from the beginning. He was always a son of perdition. He was never a sheep. He was never going to serve any other purpose except to betray me. Verse 13, but now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they themselves may have joy made full in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them Because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Boy, that's a lot of heads nodding at that verse. Yeah, the world hates us. The world doesn't get it. Why do we have joy in the midst of all these storms? Why do we continue to hold on to our faith in the finished work of Christ? Why can't the world just squash Christianity once and for all? Because it's true. Because it stood the test of time. Because Christ did come, did die, did raise again, did raise up to the right hand of God the Father. Because these things are all our hope. These are the things that we're resting in and trusting in. These are the things that we're ready to launch out into eternity on. And the world can't stop us. And the world hates that. And they did in Jesus' day. And they do now. And so Jesus told us, which, by the way, the very fact that he said the world hates this and the world hates them 
should give you a great deal of comfort again to know that no matter what, the world's going to hate us. They hated him. They hated his apostles. They hate this gospel. They're going to hate you. And I have often argued that if the world doesn't hate you, you're not doing it right. Because the world hates the real gospel. I have given them thy word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Don't you wish he had? (laughs) Don't you wish that his prayer was, Father, they belong to you. Take them now. But he left us here. He left us in the world. He left us here occupying a world. And then he said, but do keep them from the evil one. Leave them in the world, but keep them from the paneros. Keep them from the evil one. That's why the prayer that he gave his apostles, the prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, includes the phrase, deliver us from evil. It's the same word. It's paneros. It's the evil one. Keep us from the evil one. If he did not keep us from the evil one, then we're a goner. Just like Peter. When he said, Satan desired to have you, to sift you like wheat. Notice that Jesus did not follow that by saying, now get busy, Peter. He said, I've prayed for you. I've interceded for you. I've prayed for you, and that's why your faith won't fail. And when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. You need the intercessor. You need the high priest. You need somebody to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And left to yourself, you'd be easy pickings for the evil one. Verse 16. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. And thy word is truth. So follow the logic there. Sanctify them. Make them separate. Make them holy. And sanctify them. Make them holy. Make them separate. The same way that the furniture that was in the tent that I talked about earlier, the the tabernacle had pieces of furniture in it. And those pieces of furniture were sprinkled with blood and sanctified to God. They were made holy. They were holy objects by the sacrificial blood. And so it's God who sanctified those objects. And here's Jesus praying that God would sanctify people, set them apart, make them holy. Make them belong to you. And what's the method through which he's going to do that? Your word is truth. Teach them your word. Make them dependent on your word. And in so doing, you will separate them from the world. That's why I just pound the Bible over and over again for 15 years, for 20 years. I just pound the Bible because this is the word of truth that will separate people from the world. We've had the experience, and I wasn't going to talk about this, but what the heck. Like I said, I have nowhere to be. We've had people come in here and understand what we believe, or at least hear what we're saying. And we've had people stand up and say, I reject this. I hate this. I won't have any part of this. One of them showed up on a Sunday morning when Jeff was standing here. We've had people just stand up and say, no, I won't have any part of this. I don't, but you make God into a monster. Your God is evil. You believe in things I don't believe in, and they really reject it, and they really get angry about it. 
because all we've done is tell them what the word says. And they reject that word. They won't hear it. There are people, even as I'm speaking right now, who hear me saying these things on the internet, who are going to say, oh, I don't like that. I don't believe that. He's gone too far. He's one of them Calvinists. But he said that your word, all of your word, every word that's in your word, your word is going to sanctify people to yourself, separate them from the world, draw them to God. And so I say that the word is sufficient to draw you to where you need to be to a relationship with God. I know lots of preachers who tell great baseball analogies and fishing stories. And then they end up saying, come to the front and choose Jesus. And I think, on what basis? You haven't told me the word yet. You haven't said anything that would make me want to separate myself from the world. You haven't told me the word of God yet. You've just given me cute stories and nice little homilies and that kind of thing. Tell me the word of God because that has the power to separate people from the world. Amen. And that's what I want. Anyway, verse 18. As thou did send me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself. And for their sakes, not the world, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself. I had someone just this week say, you know, I struggle with that L in tulip. I struggle with that idea of a limited atonement. Okay, well, here's Jesus limiting the atonement. He just said, I don't pray for the world. And he followed it with, for the sake of those people you gave me before the foundation of the world, for their sake, I'm going to die. I sanctify myself. Well, he just limited the atonement. The atoning work of Christ on Calvary then doesn't belong to everybody without discretion, without particularity. It belongs to particular people. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. And he's already told us where to find the truth. Thy word is truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, oh good. He's not just talking about those apostles. He's not just talking about those that followed him in his time. He says, I do not just ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also whom believe in me through their word. Okay, so they now are going to have a word. We have the word. We call it the Old Testament. Based on your word, which is truth, people are being sanctified. These 11 have been sanctified along with others who have heard me and believed me. But I'm not just praying for them alone as if they're the only generation of people who would be saved by your word. I also pray for those who you're going to separate from the world through their word. And that's why we're studying Matthew. And that's why we read out of John. And that's why we pay attention to the eyewitnesses. And that's why we listen to what they have said. Because the world continues to this very moment to have particular people sanctified out of it through the word of the people who walked and talked with Jesus. And that, by the way, is pretty good authority. Eyewitness authority. 
I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who would believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Which, by the way, if you look in the book of Revelation, you find this great cloud of people, too numerous to count, of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation on earth. And they're worshiping God and glorifying the Lamb. I think that's oneness. Eventually, Jesus will get his wish. All believers of all the ages through all time will be together, and they will be praising God and worshiping the Lamb together, and will be in genuine oneness. That they all may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I am in thee, that they also may be in us. You're in Jesus. You're in God. By the Holy Spirit in you, you are in unison, in connection, in communication with the maker of heaven and earth. And I in thee that they may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity. That the world may know that thou didst send me, and I did love them, even as thou didst love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. Like I said, I believe Jesus can get a prayer through. And his prayer for his particular people that God gave him was that those people get to be with him and behold his glory. You think God's going to do that? Yes. You think God heard Jesus say that? You think he understands that that's the desire of his son? Is that all those people that he died for are going to be in his presence and are going to worship him eternally? This is really good news. I got nothing but good news going here. I'm surprised you're still in your chairs. I'm surprised people aren't throwing up their hands and screaming hallelujah. This is good, good news. And by the way, this is what Jesus prayed for you before he died. There was a weak amen from the back. Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, will be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, notice that, the world doesn't know God. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, Yet I have known you, and these have known you, and these know that you did send me. And I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known that the love wherewith thou didst love me may be with them, and I in them. Do you hear the word in there? That when this is done... I'm going to be in them. He had told his apostles, I'm going away, but don't worry. I will come to you. 
I will send you another comforter. He speaks of the Holy Spirit as a separate parakletos, the one that comes alongside. But then he says, I'll be in you, with you. I will come to you. So because of the unity of the Trinity, Jesus can say that the Holy Spirit of God being inside his people is just like he himself being inside his people. And therefore, we're secure no matter what happens on this planet, no matter what happens that the enemies of God want to rile up, no matter what occurs in your lifetime, you're absolutely secure. Turn to Matthew. Matthew 26. Now I should say that in John, what we just read, that John 18 starts with, after Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine or the brook Kidron, where there was a garden into which he entered And his disciples entered with him, and now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received a Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and from the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing there with them. So we know that this is the prayer that he prayed in the garden just before he was taken. John tells us that as soon as he finished these words, he was taken. So that's the portion of Matthew that we're in here in chapter 26. And my time is just about up. And we finally got to the text, which means that technically everything I've said so far his introduction and <clears throat> just doesn't count against my time, which is really a problem for you all because I've said three times now, I have nowhere to be. And there's cake for the people who really pay attention and stay with me till the end. So Matthew 26, starting in verse, well, let's start in verse 36 just for context. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and he began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, Not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he came to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again a second time, and he prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, thy will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again, and he went away, and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. And he came to his disciples, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Behold, 
The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Verse 45 and verse 46, I heard a preacher many years ago point out that those words are actually kind of angry words, that Jesus is not saying, take your rest, go ahead and get some sleep. He's becoming increasingly frustrated with their inability to just do the simplest thing that he's asked. Just stay with me while I'm praying. Stay and pray with me. Don't enter into temptation. Because after all, Poneros is here. After all, the devil is here. The wicked one, the evil one is here. He's in the garden. He's coming right now. This is it. This is the hour. This is what I came for. This is the primary moment in human history. And you're sleeping through it. Stay with me. Verse 47, we're finally to new material. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one sees him. In other words, all you soldiers, when we get to the garden, you're not going to know which one you're supposed to take. And he might have a crowd around him, which he very, very frequently did. And so I'll point out which one he is by going up and kissing him. So he betrays Jesus with a kiss. And immediately he went to Jesus and he said, Hail, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Who's in charge here? Jesus is entirely in charge. He knows that he's going to be tried this night. He knows that tomorrow's the Passover. In fact, the Passover had begun at evening. He had already eaten the Passover. He knows that he has to die on Passover to be the sacrificial lamb. So he has to die that day. The next day of unleavened bread, he has to be in the tomb in order to fulfill the unleavened bread. And the following first day of the week, which is coming, the Sunday that's coming, is the first day of uh, first fruits. And he has to be the first fruits of the resurrection. He has to rise on the first day of the week. He understands all that. He understands that 50 days later is Pentecost and the Holy Spirit's going to come. He had to do these things on that particular day. Whatever you've come here to do, you've come to betray me. Let's move. Let's go. Do it. And they came and laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. John tells us the name. He tells us it's Malchus, the servant. And the other synoptic gospels tell us that the one who was so headstrong, who just happened to have a sword, which I find interesting, and the one who drew his sword and cut off Malchus's ear was Peter. Of course it was. It's always Peter. So Peter whips out his sword. Don't worry, I'm going to be with you to the end. They can't take you. And he's such a good shot. I, I, think, I think he was going for cutting off his head. That's what I think was his intention. What we know for sure is somewhere in his poor swordsmanship, he managed to lop off an ear. And then Jesus did something remarkable. 
He picked up the ear that was cut off, and he heals it, puts it back on Malchus, which means that even at this moment when he's being taken, this moment when he's in the garden, this moment when it looks like he's lost all authority, he has complete authority. He meant it when he said, don't you think I can ask my father and he'll send legions of angels to come defend me? I can at any moment in my own authority and by my own sovereignty, I can at any point put a stop to this. Through his three and a half year ministry, he had constantly been like that. And I find it interesting and providential that the healing of Malchus's ear shows that Jesus still had all the power and all the authority of God and he healed somebody even then. You ever seen anybody's ear put back on? That's a pretty significant miracle to do right there in the garden. I also think it was very merciful of him. He could have said, you're an enemy. You've come here to take me. And yet he was merciful to somebody who had his ear lopped off. Hail Rabbi. And he kissed him and he said, friend, do what you have come for. And then they came and laid hands on Jesus. And they seized him and behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then? Shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? Everything I just said about the feasts that they'd been keeping for 1400 years that all prefigured the Christ, everything that Isaiah had written about the sacrifice and substitutionary atonement, everything that the scapegoat prefigured, everything that the high priest going into the Holy of Holies prefigured, all of this had to be accomplished. And it had to be accomplished right then, that night, and Jesus had to do it. And notice yet again where he placed the scripture. I know I keep saying this, but I want to drive it home. Jesus placed the scripture in the have-to category. He didn't say, it'd be nice if something haphazardly by mistake got fulfilled out of the scripture. He said the scripture must be fulfilled. It has to happen. I believe that Jesus is coming back. I believe that he's coming back for his church. I believe he's going to take his church to go be with him so that they can see his glory. Now, those are hard to imagine events, but they're said in the Bible. And so far, historically, everything that the scripture has said has to happen has happened. And he's left some things yet to be done. And those things that he's left yet to be done have to happen or the Bible's not true. And so far, it's completely true. So I believe he's coming back. I believe he's going to give us new bodies. And I believe that in a moment, the twinkling of an eye, this corruptible will put on incorruption. And this perishable will put on eternity. Because that's what the Bible says. And I'm with Jesus in saying that if the word of God says it, it has to happen. Yes. 
How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? If you're allowed to fight, if you're allowed to put your sword up, if you're, if you're allowed to start lopping off heads, if you're allowed to fight for me, then I'm not going to get tried tonight, and I'm not going to be on the cross, and I'm not going to fulfill the Passover. I'm not going to be able to do those things. But put away your sword because I am going to accomplish everything God sent me here to accomplish. And that time Jesus said, to the multitudes, the groups, the soldiers, the armies that had come out. He said, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you didn't seize me. I've been among you for three and a half years. I've been in your temple. You could have taken me at any point. I'm, I'm so available. And you come out with swords and clubs like I'm going to give you a problem. I'm not. I'm going to give myself over so that you can take me. And then he says, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. He says it again. The scripture said you were going to act like this. And because the scripture said you were going to act like this, you're acting like this. By the way, how much free will did they have in acting exactly the way that the scripture said they were going to act? None. None. The scripture said that you're going to take me today. You're taking me today. The scripture said I was going to be betrayed. I'm being betrayed. The scripture said that I'm going to die today. I'm dying today because whatever the scripture says is what's going to happen. And your free will or your desire or Peter with his sword can't change that. It's going to happen. All this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. The very disciples who earlier that evening said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Peter said, even if everyone forsakes you, I'll never forsake I'll even die for you. And Jesus said, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Because he knew what was going to happen. He knows the reality of it. So when the army comes, when the soldiers come and they take Jesus, the disciples, Peter, John, and James in particular that are with him, what do they do? They run away. They run away. Not a one stays and says, no, we need to stay here. We need to follow you. Even as you give yourself up, we need to be there testifying to the fact that you said you were going to do this. We have to point out to people that in the scripture you said all that. Nothing. Just save our skin, run and hide. Because that's what Jesus said they'd do. And so they did that. Despite the fact that they said, here's our will. Here's our determination. Our determination is not to flee. Oh, yes, you will. Why will you? Because I said so. How much free will did they have? None. none. Absolutely none. I knew if I turned to Tom, I would get the right answer. <laughs> And those who seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, who was the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. And now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Christ in order that they may put him to death. They were determined to put him to death. 
They were determined to kill him. And they couldn't find anybody who would come forward and say, I've got something against him. Because he hadn't done anything wrong. He was sinless. He only did good. Here's what I have against him. He healed some guys. What do you, what do you say about him? He did nothing but uphold the scriptures. He did, the one thing he did was that he made himself equal to God. And so they needed somebody who would say that. So they brought in people who were false witnesses, who hadn't heard him say it, but they would come and testify it anyway. And that's what a false witness is, which, by the way, notice that that is breaking a commandment. Thou shall not bear false witness against thy neighbor. So even in their religious zeal to kill Jesus on behalf of God, because Jesus uttered blasphemies in making himself equal with God, they were breaking a commandment in order to do it. So there's nothing going on that's good here. There's nothing going on right now. The chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus in order that they may put him to death, and they did not find any even though many false witnesses came forward. But later, but later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy this temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Well, Jesus said something like that, but John points out that he was speaking of his body and that if they destroyed his temple, he would raise it up again in three days. But because they were in the temple at the time, those who overheard it, even his apostles, argued with him and said, this thing has been a long time to be built. How are you going to do it in three days? But he didn't mean that. He meant his body was going to be torn down, that he would raise it up in three days. And the high priest stood up and said to him, do you make no answer? What is this that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. By the way, this is my own theory. This is going slightly outside the Bible, but I think it's right. I think the reason that Jesus kept his mouth shut is because with Jesus, words are things. If he had spoken anything, it would happen. If he had said anything in defense of himself, it would have been a good and a ready defense. So he didn't defend himself. He kept his mouth closed so that he could be exactly like the sacrificial lambs, so that he could be the spotless and the unblemished lamb of God who would die for the sins of those people that God gave him. And he knew he was going to do it. I also think that he just didn't want to gum up the works. It's like, let's go, guys. The same thing he said to Judas. Let's go. Go ahead, try me. Do whatever you got to do. I got to be on a cross tomorrow. So he didn't say a word. He kept silent. Verse 63, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you said it. You just said it. You just said that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Whether you look at Ezekiel, whether you look at Daniel, this is one of the important prefigures of Christ, that he would come to the Father 
and that he would stand in the presence of the Almighty, that he would be equal with him and yet be the son of man. He would be a child. He'd be a, a baby. He'd be flesh and blood. He'd be a human. So one like the son of man, such powerful nomenclature, one like the son of man who is also equal with God. And he said, you're going to see me standing in glory. I'm going to be your judge. You think you're judging me? Wait till I come back and wait till you stand in front of me and wait until I'm on my white throne judging people. You'll find out who I am. Then the high priest tore his robes saying he has blasphemed. The high priest understood what Jesus was saying. He made himself equal with God. He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you've now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he is deserving of death. And then they spat in his face and they beat him with their fists and others slapped him. And they said to him, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? And now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a certain servant girl came to him and said, you too were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it. Before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those that were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for the way you talk gives you away. His accent. He was a Galilean. For the way you talk gives you away. And he began to curse and to swear and to say, I do not know the man. And immediately the cock crowed. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. Is it worth asking one more time? How much free will did Peter have? None. He was going to deny him, and he was going to deny him out loud three times. That was going to happen. Why? Because Jesus said so. Last verse. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a cock crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out, and he wept bitterly. So I hope you see that even in this story, the gospel story of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ, at no point in the entire proceedings did he cease to be anything except sovereign God. At no point did he lose control. At no point was he anything except in charge. Because the scripture said what was going to happen to him, and because the scripture said it, he was going to accomplish it, and even said to his father, I have accomplished all of it. And I'm doing exactly what you sent me here to do, exactly the way that you sent me here to do it. And that's the God of the Bible. That's the only Jesus you find in the Bible, the Jesus who limited the atoning work that he was about to do. And that's the only gospel that there is. If people have told you some other gospel, Paul admits there are people preaching another Christ and a different gospel, which is not the same.
which is not commensurate to. There are people who dumb down the gospel. There are people who make the gospel more user-friendly, but the only one that you find in the Bible leaves God in his absolute sovereignty and leaves Jesus in charge, and that's a really good place to leave him. And that's the Bible. Got it? Got it. Well, then we're done here, and you can all have cake. Really, that's that's the response? And you can all have cake. (laughs) That was just just shy of Tom Slick. Um, For the few people who know that cartoon. You're too young, right? You don't know Tom Slick. It's a cartoon, and every time the crowd cheered for him in unison, they'd go, yay. (laughs) (laughs) Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.